You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Mabel Chu, practice editor for the BMJ. This week, I'll be hearing about why preeclampsia is easily missed. It can evolve into these serious variants that can be life-threatening uh, without any symptoms to the mother at all. But before that, with all our efforts to tackle obesity, it makes a lot of sense to understand its causes. A BMJ head-to-head online this week asks, are the causes of obesity primarily environmental? John Wilding is head of the Department of Obesity and Endocrinology at the University of Liverpool, and he says yes. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hello. And John's just come from his clinic for severe obesity at University Hospital Aintree, where he's clinical lead. On the other side of the fence, we have Tim Frayling, who's arguing no. Tim is Professor of Human Genetics at the University of Exeter. Hello, Tim. Thank you. Hello. Tim, let's start with you. How much of obesity can be explained by genetic predisposition? Uh, So uh, I think... Uh, when we start the debate, uh, we probably actually will be starting from a, uh, a reasonably similar position before we um, diverge. There's little doubt that the reason that the average body mass index in the population has increased so much in just a few decades is entirely or virtually entirely uh, down to changes in the environment. But that's a different question to the one which my research is about, which is more about, given we are where we are in today's environment, and we're all exposed to a similar environment, why do some of us get considerably overweight, and why do some of us remain relatively slim? There is quite a bit of decent evidence to suggest that where you are on the scale of BMI in a given population at a given time is appreciably driven by um, your genes. And two broad categories of evidence tell us a little bit about about that. One is the classic uh, twin studies. Clearly and repeatedly over many studies um, show that the correlation between identical twins is much stronger than the correlation between same-sex non-identical twins. Different studies um, vary in terms of how much bigger, but it can be twice that between non-identical twins. And backing that up, less extensive data, but still pretty compelling data that when you compare adoptees' BMIs to their biological and their adoptive parents' BMIs, that they're more strongly correlated with their biological parents than their adoptive parents. Okay, so quite a lot of evidence from twin and adoption studies to back up the genetic hypothesis. John, what's your response to that? There's nothing that Tim has said that isn't true, and I would certainly agree with him that the population distribution, if you like, of, of, of body weight has, has a strong genetic component. Um, but what we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years is, is, is a shifting of that of that distribution really quite dramatically to the right. And it's interesting when you look at the way that distribution has changed is that the the fattest uh, of the population uh, appear to be gaining weight fastest. And of course, Tim would argue that that was because they had the the most, the strongest genetic predisposition. And that may well be be partly true. But I think um, to see that dramatic change 
clearly there is uh, there is an environmental component and what we've seen is 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 a complete sea change in the way uh, that we deal with food as a society and also the the way that we deal with uh, physical activity as a society and if you take um the the food half of the equation first and i i think that's probably uh, a reasonable thing to do uh, I, mean, I had spent some time working in experimental models of obesity in rodents and it's very easy to make rodents fat because all you do is provide them with um, you know cake and chocolate biscuits and sure enough they eat the chocolate biscuits and they get fatter and effectively that's what the food industry has been doing for the last 30 or 40 years our food production has become highly industrialized and what's happened is that the cost of the most energy dense foods the ones that are most likely to make you put on weight particularly if you're genetically genetically predisposed to do so has come down, uh, whereas that of the more healthier options is actually relatively more expensive, both in terms of cost and also in terms of, uh, in our time-limited society, the amount of time we have to prepare that food. Uh, at the same time, we've seen this change in the, in the physical environment where we're becoming a very sedentary uh, population. Uh, and that, of course, combined with the um, change in the food is, is a perfect storm for creating um, creating more more obesity and it's true that the whole society has got fatter but there is also a very strong uh, socio-economic uh, difference uh, in obesity in that it is much more common in those on lower incomes and, and I'm sure that's probably not genetic but is, is very likely to be environmental and related to this. Yes clearly there has to be some environmental factor at play because our genes can't have changed that much in the last three decades, during which time obesity has markedly risen. Um, but it seems to me that there clearly is common ground between both your views. One thing in response to John's comments about socioeconomic factors, there's a very interesting study from Stockport, I think it was, uh, based on 20,000 young adults that looked at their socioeconomic status in relation to how they put on weight as they aged over the course of 10 or 20 years. This is a, a longitudinal study and um, showed pretty clear evidence in those large numbers that the young adults who were in the better off group, although they started off at lower BMIs, they put on weight at exactly the same rate as the people in the lowest socioeconomic groups. So that to me suggests that whilst economic status influences maybe how you put on weight in childhood and where you end up as a young adult, as you, as you get older, it's not going to be the, the whole answer to the problem. No. Jim, I'd like to just go down the genetic path a little more. Have there been individual genes identified that explain genetic inheritance better? Uh, yes, the, the, there's been great progress. And um, we're now up to about 32 variations in the genome that we've identified, which um, all the scientists in the field believe are genuinely um, altering BMI. Um, they include the FTO gene, which was uh, discovered about five years ago. Uh, John will, I'm sure, say that they, and he's correct, will be correct, but saying they don't explain a large proportion of the um, variation in BMI, but they, they do allow us to start to uh, understand some of the biology, because if we know the genes or the regions of the genome involved in influencing even a small amount of BMI, that 
helps point us in the direction of why some people get fatter as they age in today's environment. And can we quantify how much fatter people with this gene are or, or how much weight they're more likely to put on compared to people without the gene? What we can do now is add up the 30 or so regions of the genome, work out how many versions of different genes people have and how, based on those regions of the genome, how genetically predisposed um, they are. Mm. And approximately, again, it varies from study to study, but approximately, if you take the 5% of people who have the greatest genetic risk and compare them to the 5% of people with the lowest genetic risk, you're talking about uh, sort of three units in BMI difference. I mean, if I can just come back to Tim on that one for a minute, because that's that's interesting. So if, if you add up all your genes, you get three BMI differences. I've just come from a clinic this morning where the average body mass index is 46. Even if I did the genetic test with all of those known genes, it's unlikely that that's going to explain uh, the obesity in most of those people. Um, and even if you take the, the, the few where we have a single gene defect that is identifiable, and those do have very powerful effects, you know, leptin deficiency and so on, which are, of course, incredibly rare. Um, uh, we only really have developed effective treatments for, for one of those sort of half a dozen or so that are very powerful single gene defects. So to be able to target um, 32 different genes that end up with somebody being three BMI units greater seems to me to be quite a tall order, uh, whereas we can perhaps change the environment and bring the whole population down and have a much better effect on public health than we might do by going for, for genetic uh, solutions. John, you're, you're moving now to uh, solutions, which is um, really the name of the game here. So what do you see as solutions to, to the problem? If we're going to solve this problem, we, we are going to need to make some very fundamental changes to the way we behave as a society, both in terms of our food production, food marketing, uh, and also in the way that we change the, the physical environment to make it more conducive to people to, to undertake uh, more physical activity as part of their, their, their daily lives. I, I know the government is, is making efforts to encourage the food industry to make changes voluntarily, and my, my own suspicion is that that probably won't be enough and that in fact we will need to take the approach that's been taken by other countries and actually legislate to try and uh, limit the availability and the marketing of some of these uh, foods that are, are, are actually really quite toxic. At the same time we do need to engage um, local authorities and government to think about how they change the, the built environment to make it easier for us to walk and in fact that might be one good thing that comes out of moving the responsibility of public health to local authorities because they may be able to take a fresh look at some of this. Um, I, I do think, however, that when I'm putting my clinician's hat on and I'm treating individual patients, clearly changing the marketing strategies of a few major food companies is not going to work quickly and it's not going to help the person sat in front of me. And I think that may be where the genetics might eventually, eventually be able to help us. Tim, your response to that? The, the point about individualised therapy... Um, using genetic information, with the exception of rare, severe causes of obesity, such as the leptin deficiencies that John mentioned. I think we're still some way off being able to do that. Uh, we don't understand enough. We haven't um, identified enough of the genetic component. Um, and, and in a sort of ironical way, what the genetic evidence so far has told us is that changing the environment has to be 
uh, a key part of the solution. Your biology means that to a certain extent your appetite is not under your conscious control, there's a subconscious element to it. The evidence that there's a strong genetic component to appetite, for example, implies that we should change the environment, making sure those children and parents are not exposed to as much food, and especially as much junk food, I suspect. Well, thank you both. In this so-called debate on genes versus environment, there seems to be much more agreement than disagreement. Um, but thank you both for updating us on the latest evidence. Now, earlier this week, I talked to David Williams, a consultant obstetric physician at University College Hospital in London. We discussed the topic of an article in the BMJ's Easily Missed series, preeclampsia. And I started by asking him how he would define it. Well, the bones of the definition are the new onset of hypertension above a level of 140 over 90 uh, with associated proteinuria above 300 milligrams in 24 hours or 30 milligrams per millimole on a protein-creatinine ratio. Now, as you just alluded to, it it is a multi-system disorder and there are more modern definitions that include uh, hypertension with other system disorders like thrombocytopenia uh, or a liver transaminitis that would go without proteinuria in uh, rare occasions. Are you referring to the severe form of preeclampsia known as HELP syndrome? Well, that, that is certainly uh, a, an element of severe preeclampsia recognised by hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes and low platelets. But the latter two elements of the HELP syndrome are actually very common in preeclampsia. When it gets to the hemolysis, which is the microangiopathic hemolysis, that's actually really very rare mm. and, and certainly um, a serious condition for the mother and fetus. Why do you think it is missed? Well, mainly because it's asymptomatic and relatively rare. Uh, it's a condition most common in first-time pregnant mothers and affects 2 to 8% of prima gravidas. Uh, but it can evolve into these serious um, variants that can be life-threatening uh, without any symptoms to the mother at all. Mm. Um, and the earliest symptoms are either headache or epigastric discomfort. And certainly in the second half of pregnancy, uh, if these conditions develop, it's worth doing a very simple check of the blood pressure and dipping the urine to, to look for, for preeclampsia. And these are part of the routine antenatal check anyway, are they not? That's correct, yes. Mm. And you can actually, through that, pick up subtle, slow rises in, in blood pressure, but uh, often it comes on quite rapidly when it starts in the, in the second half of pregnancy. Yes, and I, I think that is often uh, one of the scariest things about recognising preeclampsia, the fact that it can advance so quickly. Now, I was told as a medical student uh, not so much to worry about absolute values of um, blood pressure, but also to worry about rises in blood pressure, even if it hasn't quite hit the threshold. Yes, that's a good point. Um, I mean, in, in healthy pregnancy... Uh, women actually drop their blood pressure, reaching a nadir around 16 to 20 weeks, uh, in particular with regards to the diastolic blood pressure. Uh, and then it rises up to pre-pregnancy values in the third trimester. Uh, and in fact, women with chronic hypertension who are predisposed to preeclampsia will also show this gradual drop in blood pressure. And so can, if they're treated with tablets antenatally, can often stop their tablets in the first trimester and maybe require them again in the third trimester. 
Um, now, with preeclampsia, we use this rise in blood pressure to a level over 140 over 90, really to keep uh, clinical investigation of this condition tight. So it's it's a definition used in studies. Uh, and crossing that n- that diastolic blood pressure of 90 is seems pretty important. Uh, and so in particular, we look out for that. Mm. Now, you've already alluded to some of the clinical features such as headache and epigastric pain or discomfort. What are some of the uh, other symptoms that one as a GP ought to be uh, asking about? Mm. Uh, well, headaches with, with visual aura... Uh, this epigastric pain and sometimes right hypochondrial pain are really symptoms of well-developed preeclampsia. It's not the case that these symptoms occur before the rise in blood pressure or the development of biochemical or hematological change. So those symptoms should give the cue to check the blood pressure and to dip the urine. Uh, but then, then a sign like edema, uh, if that comes on rapidly, in particular of the hands and face, then this this is above what one would expect from healthy pregnancy. And that is often quite worrying, isn't it, yeah. to see? Yeah. Okay, what about women with certain risk factors? Should they be red, red flags? Uh, yes. So uh, I've mentioned already first-time pregnant mothers are particularly at risk. Um, but then women with chronic hypertension, so about one in five women with chronic hypertension, 20%, will go on to develop preeclampsia in their first pregnancy and 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 also women with renal disease diabetes mellitus um, they're they're at increased risk probably because of pre-existing endothelial dysfunction in their in their peripheral circulation and then women who more generally have cardiovascular risk factors so those who are obese and maybe uh, have hyperlipidemia if they knew about it uh, are certainly at increased risk of um, of preeclampsia. And in this day and age, I guess women with pre-existing diabetes. Yes, yes. What about a previous history or family history of preeclampsia? Yes, the stronger of those two is certainly a woman who's previously had preeclampsia herself. So depending on the gestation of onset of preeclampsia in her first pregnancy, uh, if it was late onset preeclampsia, and it's about a 15% risk of recurrent preeclampsia, but if it's before 28 weeks, which is very early onset preeclampsia, then up to 50% of these women will have preeclampsia in a future pregnancy. Uh, The family history is stronger if the woman's sisters had preeclampsia and slightly less strong if the mother had preeclampsia. So there's a genetic element that um, we're all working hard to try and find out about, but it's there and exactly what those genes are remain a bit of a mystery. Okay, let's move on now to investigations. We have a woman in front of us who has proteinuria already and raised blood pressure. What are the tests that we need to be doing at at the very early stage? Yes, so the simplest of tests would be a full blood count, in particular looking for thrombocytopenia. Now in healthy pregnancy, again, the platelet count does naturally drift downwards uh, but if it falls below 100, that would be worth pursuing further, with, a th- especially if there was hypertension and proteinuria. Uh, and then a check of uh, urea and uh, electrolytes with liver function. So actually, although kidney impairment is a feature of preeclampsia, it's generally fairly mild. Uh, and the creatinine, which drops in healthy pregnancy, 
may go back just up to normal levels for the non-pregnant woman uh, and rarely above a creatinine of 120 micromoles per litre. Then with regards to the liver, the rise in liver transaminases, in particular ALT and AST, is notable, but a generally harmless development um, until it gets very high, actually. And, and certainly if they went above 500 international units, one would be considering um, delivery of the fetus. But it, it, it is actually, with all of these tests, it's the rate of change that's mm. most alarming. So if the platelet count is falling rapidly, the liver transaminase is rising precipitously, uh, this would be a strong indication to deliver the baby and placenta, which, of course, remains the only cure for preeclampsia at the moment. Mm. Okay, one for future research. So moving on to management now, you've said that delivery uh, is the only cure, um, but a step before that, I guess, would be in anyone that a GP suspects of having or developing preeclampsia, urgent hospital referral uh, would be the way to go. Yes, and, and it's, it's, that's important because of the unpredictable nature of preeclampsia. Um, as we've said earlier, it can, it can evolve rapidly within hours, actually. Uh, and uh, until we get an, an understanding of an individual woman's uh, preeclampsia progress, it's best to keep her in hospital. In fact, nice guidance suggests that women should stay in hospital uh, through once preeclampsia has been diagnosed because of, in particular, two unpredictable events that can occur once preeclampsia is established. That is the development of eclampsia, mm. which can come out of the blue, uh, and also placental abruption. And so being in hospital is certainly the best place to be if those two events occur. Absolutely, given how frightening they can be when they occur in the community and how difficult to control. Mm. Now, as you say, delivery is the cure, but uh, sometimes there might be concerns about whether the fetus is sufficiently mature for that. Mm. Uh, and so in those uh, instances, um, is there a cut-off point at which... Uh, one would be a little more comfortable about uh, delivering a baby. Yes, there's been some interesting work recently from the Netherlands that uh, has really made us feel comfortable that once a woman has preeclampsia after 37 weeks, uh, there seems little doubt that there's very little to be gained by continuing the pregnancy after 37 weeks. Before 34 weeks, one worries about consequences of prematurity for a fetus often growth-restricted, uh, born to a mother with preeclampsia before 34 weeks. So one tries to keep the pregnancy going with conservative management of maternal hypertension. Uh, but at the same time, always monitoring uh, fetal well-being. And my fetal medicine colleagues are quite good at doing that these days with Doppler studies of the umbilical artery blood flow. And so we can time the best moment for delivery, which will allow the fetus to be born with the best chances of survival. Mm. And what are the drugs that might be used to control blood pressure? Well, there's an array of a handful of drugs that are widely used around the world. The most commonly used is methyl dopa still. Mm. Uh, and that, though, has been around uh, for 50 years mm. and actually abandoned by mm. doctors outside of pregnancy because of its side effects. But we're comfortable about its safety in pregnancy and, and actually, now that um, other newer antihypertensives have come along and we're increasingly confident about their safety, we, we're using other drugs like labetalol, 
which is probably the first-line treatment in my own practice, followed by nifedipine, slow-release, a calcium channel blocker, uh, and then maybe adding methyl dopa if a third agent was necessary. And very rarely, actually, using parenteral treatment like intravenous hydralazine or intravenous labetalol. Mm. Uh, that might stabilize an acute situation, but... Um, these women who present with this very severe hypertension have often had it developing for some days before they present and a, a nice gradual reduction with oral treatment is preferable really to sudden drops in blood pressure with parenteral treatment. Okay. Now having managed the preeclampsia, uh, one hopes optimally and delivered the baby, what sort of long-term follow-up mm. uh, would be required? Well, that's an interesting question. Most women will recover from their hypertension and proteinuria within two to three weeks of delivery. Some take longer, six weeks to up to three months. And in fact, if the proteinuria was very heavy, it can take uh, six to 12 months, which I have seen in, in my time. Now, even if the women make a full recovery, they are at increased risk of chronic hypertension in later life, about a fourfold increased mm. risk compared mm. to those women who had a normotensive pregnancy. And that does translate into a doubling of their risk of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease in later life as well. And I think this all reflects a pre-pregnancy vulnerability to cardiovascular disease, which is um, also a prerequisite, if you like, for, for the development of pre-eclampsia. Mm. Uh, so how we monitor and follow up women who have had pre-eclampsia is, is much discussed because we don't actually have the evidence to say one avenue of postnatal care in these circumstances is advantageous over another. But I think if, if when, when now we've got enough data to support that there is an increased risk in these women and therefore trying to correct any pre-pregnancy risk factors such as obesity, uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia uh, with improved diet, improved exercise, and possibly with, with drugs, then this would, would only be a, a, a good measure of primary prevention of future disease. So uh, this is what we're recommending. And, and good communication between the obstetricians who sought out the preeclampsia and the primary care physicians postnatally is, a, is a, a critical link that's rather shaky at the moment and I think needs to be strengthened uh, for the benefit of women's health. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, delivery isn't the end of the story. Um, and, and obviously good communication with the patient too, because while one doesn't want to scare them unnecessarily and to um, uh, make them feel that they're, they're um, a ticking time bomb, as it were, um, how, how would you explain the long-term ramifications or possible ramifications to a woman? Yes, it's... it's um, I do so depending on the severity of the preeclampsia. I think there's um, now good evidence to support the fact that if it was very early onset preeclampsia, uh, then this is um, uh, identifies a woman at greater risk of future cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease compared to someone who had later onset preeclampsia. And... Um, and if there were any obvious cardiovascular risk factors in the women, such that they were overweight or obese, then these are the primary. Uh, uh, this is a primary risk factor that they can work on. 
themselves with diet and exercise and with their um, primary care doctors. But um, I, 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 apart from identifying this ongoing risk in later life, I, I agree it's also important that we don't frighten these women into thinking it's going to happen in, in the next weeks or months. Uh, which is which is very unusual. So trying to put it into perspective, um, so it actually putting a sp- positive spin on it, such that this is, in a sense, an opportunity to put right something that may be wrong already, uh, so that it will improve both uh, life length and quality will, is a good thing. Yes, and and the virtues of, of picking these things up early so that one can do something about them before yeah. um, uh, bigger problems develop. David, thank you. That's been a very succinct and useful update on uh, current thinking and management of preeclampsia. Good. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with two interviews looking at diabetes. One on new therapeutic agents for type 2 diabetes. Do they live up to the hype? And a research article on stents in diabetes. Join us then. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.